Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, listeners. Special episode disclaimer. We recorded this entire episode once and threw it in the bin. The reason was the sound quality. Katie wasn't there, and being the competent DIY modern men we are, we thought we could handle it ourselves. But it didn't sound so great. Here's how it turned out. Hello and welcome to Film Chat. On this episode, I'm clothes shopping in the local mall with my dear mother when a man covered in blood accosts me. You know, we thought it would be an interesting experimental art piece released that way, but might lose us the three listeners that we have so <laughs> we decided to have another crack and you'll be listening to something much slicker but much less spontaneous so enjoy hello and welcome to film chat on this episode i'm clothes shopping in the local mall with my dear mother when a man covered in blood accosts us he friends me and my mum and makes us take him home with him we soon learn that this man called sam foster is a wanted convict having recently escaped from prison Anyway, things are obviously a little fraught to begin with, but it turns out Sam's actually a pretty useful guy to have around the house. He fixes a bunch of things that were broken, and he teaches my mum how to make peach pie. Anyway, we all plan to move to Canada to evade the law, but unfortunately the cops show up. So Sam ties me and my mum up so we can't be accused of harboring a fugitive, and goes back to prison to serve the rest of his sentence. Years later, I own my own pie restaurant. I get a letter from Sam informing me that he's about to be released from prison and asking whether my mum's still single. I say go for it. And Sam and my mum spend their twilight years together. That's a beautiful story. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Sam. That was actually the plot of the 2009 film Labor Day. I've confused you with Josh Brolin's character and my mum with Kate Winslet there. This is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. Sorry about that. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is the Vietnam veteran who accidentally murdered his ex-girlfriend, Sam Foster. Hello. No need to see Labor Day, anyone. You've heard <laughs> literally everything that happens in that film now. So Deadpool, starring Ryan Reynolds as the motormouth superhero dropping F-bombs on the fourth wall, has been a huge hit with audiences and critics alike. It's all anyone is talking about right now. So Danny and I decided to go and see the film's poster outside the Curzon Mayfair on our way to watch some art house bullshit for wankers. The poster was quite good, but was it as good as A Bigger Splash, in which Ray Fiennes, Tilda Swinton, Matthias Schoenartz, and Dakota Johnson end up on a sunny poolside holiday that goes pear-shaped? Not a phrase you would use to describe anyone in that sexy, sexy cast. Danny dives into his review later on. I drafted 37 water-based puns for this introduction, and that was the best one. Meanwhile, I review a film you're even less likely to see, Taiwanese martial arts drama The Assassin. Sight and Sound contributors recently voted it the best film of 2015, praising its long, quiet sequences and puzzling narrative. The critics love it, but it still has a lower score on Rotten Tomatoes than Deadpool. I wonder how Sight and Sound feels about that. 
Plus, we round up all the action from the BAFTAs, which I didn't watch, but luckily Danny did, get all excited about the prospect of a new film from the ever-provocative Lars von Trier, and speculate as to what J.J. Abrams might be up to in his latest secrecy-shrouded sci-fi project. All of that should leave just enough time for me to practice an ancient meditative technique taught to me by a Californian yoga instructor. Eat a kilogram of rice a single grain at a time, marking each one with a line of dialogue from a Woody Allen film. He said it helps the digestion. He was a unique character. (laughs) Sounds nuts. Correspondence time, Dougal McQueen, regular film chat correspondee, got in touch with this. Is The People vs. O.J. Simpson the David Schwimmer rebirth you've been banging on about? What is The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Tenny? That is a TV series which dramatises... O.J. Simpson fighting the entire population of the United States. (laughs) That's the one. The trial of the century. Uh When he definitely did it, but got off. Hell of a legal team. Yeah. Anyway, what he's referring to is for years... Maybe decades, not decades. That's ridiculous. I've been saying that David Schwimmer, <laughs> Ross from Friends, is due like a Brian Cranston style career renaissance. I think he's got serious dramatic chops. Yeah. And I actually watched the first episode of People vs. O.J. Simpson and I was like, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very good. Shower of Emmys approaching. I say, that show is not very good. What is it like? I'm imagining a kind of Aaron Sorkin esque. Um, it's very. Affair. I think it assumes. Because I like, have no real idea what happened. He's mm. definitely guilty. That's what I knew. It kind of like has all these moments in it, which I imagine is like loaded with meaning. It's like, it's the white Toyota he drove. And it's like, I don't know what that means. But yeah, it was a really yeah. big deal. The funniest thing about it is that everyone refers to OJ Simpson as just the juice. And so <laughs> David Schwimmer's like, I've never seen the juice act this way. The juice looks so sad. And it's like, I don't I feel even if that was accurate at the time. I think it was a mistake having the main character called the juice. Makes all everyone's lines seem stupid. <laughs> anyway, so why? What is it about David Schwimmer that t- you know tipped you off to the fact that there's great I'm, acting I'm, inside him? I'm glad you asked. The reason I think he's a great actor is because in Friends, uh, all the other characters are kind of really well defined. Well, they're kind of sort of slight cliches in a way, but he was like the sort of straight man. And when he's the sort of center of the narrative, as he was in the early series of Friends, was the whole Ross and Rachel thing. He had like lots to do, but when they're not together. The writers don't know what to do with him, so they give him like the weirdest plot lines. He tries to kiss his cousin. He tans himself eight times in one day. <laughs> um, it's just like absolutely mental, and he's simultaneously the campest, most macho, dumbest, smartest character who's like emotionally unavailable and also like a, a wreck. And it's like his character just makes no sense, but he's such a good actor. He somehow made that work. So I think if you can make the character of Ross Geller, as he's written from seasons five onwards, seem like a coherent person. You're like the greatest actor in the world. Yeah. What do you think is the perfect vehicle for Schwimmer's hidden acting talents? That's a good question. I mean, I think he would have been... 
he could have been in Breaking Bad. He could have done that kind of character, mild-mannered. Mm. I think he can play smart really well. He just seems... He has a certain intellectual quality to him. Um, Maybe... The newsroom? Um, Steve Jobs? He could play Steve Jobs. He could play... I'm stuck on this Aaron Sorkin thing. <laughs> Um, he could play Neil deGrasse Tyson, maybe? He's smarter than Russell Crowe, isn't he? He should have been in A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He should have just had Russell Crowe's career. <laughs> but he doesn't always play smart guys. He should have been Gladiator. Yeah. Now, that would have tested him. Yeah, because he's obviously a, clearly like a New York Jewish guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, regular correspondent Danny wrote <laughs> on the uh, Film Chat Facebook page this week, you watched A Bigger Splash? And you were noting that there's a sequence in which Rafe Fiennes dances around to Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones. It's a big highlight for you. It was great. And you were saying that you love movies that aren't like dance or musical movies, but that feature dance sequences. And you invited our legions of listeners to write in and yeah. offer their own contributions. How many people wrote in, Sam? I haven't checked the Facebook page in a while. No one wrote in, Danny. Oh, Jesus. No one wrote in. And I barely registered this post myself just now. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if this really belongs this <laughs> in this segment, but it is an interesting thing to discuss. So, Danny, what else would you highlight apart from the bit in A Bigger Splash? I love Sam Rockwell's evil dance in Charlie's Angels mm-hmm. because you've seen Charlie's Angels, right? No. Anyway, so he plays like a sort of nervy guy who is like who hires the angels at the start of the movie and then twist. He's actually evil. Okay. And it's like his character has like a 180. And the way they demonstrate this is it goes from nervous guy who's a bit clumsy to dancing around to uh, Simon Says by Faramouche. Yeah. And this is awesome. Sam Rockwell is actually a good um, person to highlight this because he loves to dance. He loves to dance. He dances in when he's on uh, interviews and stuff. He dances in Iron Man 2 briefly, for absolutely <laughs> no reason. Yeah. yeah, it's just great dancing. That's probably the highlight of that movie. And I love the dancing from Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, yeah. The That's super true. freak. I That's think that really makes good. that movie like pretty good to like really good. But the last five minutes are great. Just the dance scene. Do you think that these dance scenes like are actually really good or is it just fun for the audience, you know? Yeah, that's Have pretty much it. to dance. And also... Although that one is, yeah, that's a particularly good one. On that note, I like, I love all the Austin Powers openings because it's a real like get on board. This movie's going to be fun. It's so much fun. Everyone's dancing already. Yeah. And it really sets the tone. Yeah. I think that's why like dance scenes are good is because it's just like the movie cutting loose and it's like hey it's just fun and it's good i like seeing people who are not good at dancing dancing there's something very accessible about that well these are not like if they're not professional dancers absolutely yeah i mean that's one of the things that's fun about the woody allen movie everyone says i love you or also uh john Turturro's romance and cigarettes is there's all the singing in both those movies that aren't by professional singers just having a go yeah they're just like regular guys kind of giving it some oomph and there's something more um it connects with you more about that than having like Broadway superstars do it because that's just like, oh, they're doing their professional thing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you have James Gandolfini trying to sing Engelbert Humperdinck, it's like, we can't sing that well, but you know, it works, works really well. Do you think having people sing and dance is like a pure expression of character? It's like, you know what I mean? It cuts, how someone dances says something about them. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's part of what appeals about it is because we feel like it's just a direct appeal to your emotions, cutting out all the other nonsense. Absolutely. You know? So, yeah, no, it is a fun thing. You've also posted on Facebook the um, bit from Something Wild, where Jeff Daniels dances, which I'm also a film I haven't seen. <laughs> post, people, post. What's yes. that? <laughs> <laughs> the ghost of... <laughs> 
Film chat passed. The ghost of Facebook demands attention. Superhero films announced, passing rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tips. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Lars von Trier. You love him. I love him. I like him. You I... like him. The listeners, indifferent perhaps. <laughs> He is making a film this year, and he released a video of him telling the world this fact. Let's listen to it. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to remind you that this year we will be shooting my next feature film, The House That Jack Built. This ain't rock and roll. This is genocide. Genius. Genius. The man's a genius. Genius. Referencing uh, the opening lyrics of David Bowie's Diamond Dogs there. Montreal mm. was a massive David Bowie fan. He at- Here's a bit of trivia. He asked David Bowie to write some music for Antichrist. But he didn't. <laughs> I don't, I've tried to I'm, write something. I'm sorry, Von Trier. I, I'm too busy. I wrote a raising song my about daughter, a right. clitoris being removed, but it wasn't very good. Uh, the house that Jack built was announced last year as an eight-part uh, miniseries, but he's obviously simmered it down into yeah. an eight-hour film. It was a mansion, <laughs> and now it's going to be a hovel <laughs> or a little hut. And uh, yeah, all we know about it is that it's going to be about a serial killer, presumably called Jack. Maybe a lady serial killer? He likes to have women in his Jack films. Jack the Ripper? Jack. Do you think? Oh. Yeah, that's a famous serial killer called Jack. Yeah. This is going to be like Jack the Builder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I love Lars von Trier to the point where I'm a bit worried that he'll just make a film that's complete shit and I just won't be able to tell. Yeah, you've lost your critical <laughs> objectivity with Lars. Yeah, if he had directed Kingsman of Secret Service, like, this film is a masterpiece. It is brilliant. <laughs> this film is incredible. That anal sex gag at the end was a moment of genius provocation. <laughs> Only an enfant terrible, like Von Trier, <laughs> who could produce such an amazing film. Yeah. Also in that video, which you couldn't hear in the audio, he's wearing a kind of white bandana. What does it mean, Danny? Does a character, he's a genius. Does a character get a head injury in it? Is there someone who's like a kamikaze pilot? What could it be? <laughs> Any of those things? What could it be? Maybe his head was just a bit chilly when he recorded the video and he didn't have a hat to hand. Who knows? He's a closed book. But the book is a bestseller. I don't know. What am I, talk- <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> anyway, super psyched for that. Super psyched for that. So over the weekend, the BAFTAs happened. And I was contemplating watching this. I felt like it was probably my film chat duty. And then I thought about three hours of Stephen Fry and his lovey, stupid gags. And I just did something else. <laughs> but Danny is quite dedicated to his craft. And you watched it. So yeah. what did you think, Danny? Well, I did have like five beers before watching it. So <laughs> I'd lowered my standards enough to bring myself. Yeah, he was kind of terrible. It's just the same old stuff. How many years has he been doing it now? Like it's crazily long. He's been doing it for like 15 years or something. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a man who maybe should have retired from this gig a while ago. Yeah, he's kind of going through the motions now. Yeah. And it was just a bit... just. Every sentence was had about 12 adjectives in it, which, I don't know. Was there anything as good it. as last time where he was like, some people say the world is going to hell, but I say it's going to Helena Bonham Carter? Helena, yeah, Helena Hancock. Oh, yeah, Helena Hancock. That's <laughs> right, it was even better. <laughs> Helena Hancock, but it's going to Helena Bonham Carter. That was mental. That was a great joke. Come on, that was the joke of the year. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, the BAFTAs, they were sort of, you know, in terms of the actual winners, it was a bit of a mixed bag for me. There were some highlights. John Boyega won uh, Best Rising Star BAFTA, even though, I mean, he's he's fully risen, right? He's a star. He's a star. He was a rising star in Attack of the Block. Can you be a rising star if you've just been a starring character in the biggest film in the world? Cool Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's got star in the name. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was just his typical charming self and his uh, acceptance speech was really good. Um, I was pleased that Amy got best doc. The film Amy, not my sister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also Wild Tales got best foreign film, which yeah. was a cool pick. That's a very cool choice. Great movie. And uh, Ennio Morricone got best score for The Hateful Eight. That was a really cool score. I think the big disappointment for me was that Carol got no critical love. And I thought it's had a bit of a sh- shutout on most ceremonies, but it was really highly regarded in Britain. So I was hoping there'd be some crossover between... Yeah, and it was leading the way in the nominations, right? Absolutely. And Rooney Mara didn't get it for Best Supporting Actress and Kate Winslet did. Do you think that the power of awards narratives is such that Carol can get all these nominations, but by the time it comes to the handing out of the awards, it's lost the momentum? Yeah, so I that think people, that's definitely it. Because you know, they announced the Oscars and it didn't do that well there. And so did that sway BAFTA voters? Like, is that possible? I don't really know the mechanisms of it. I don't know. It's sort of fizzled out. It's a shame. That was a really good movie. That was one of those things that the critics um, went bananas for that kind of deserved it. It's sort of the opposite of the big winner of the night, The Revenant, in that it's so subtle. And, you know, with The Revenant, you can see all the working out. That's definitely a movie directed. They're it's definitely one of the acting. Least, least subtle films ever made. Whereas um, I guess you don't get awards for nuance. I don't know. Yeah. I think, well, the thing about awards is that it's just, it's a kind of lowest common denominator thing. It's the, you know, something which is mediocre is more likely to appeal to more people. Yeah, yeah. So the movie nobody hates. It's easier to win, yeah. Yeah, so a bit of a mixed bag. Also, Mad Max won a bunch of sort of technical categories, but it didn't win best visual effects. Star Wars did. And that obviously had very good special effects. Is visual effects for just computer-generated effects, or is that just for all your special effects? I'm not sure, actually. I think it's everything. Yeah, because if it's everything, then you can't really beat Mad Max for visual spectacle. But it's like, in Mad Max, it's seamless. Like, you can't see the CGI. Apart from that big storm sequence, where you're like, obviously, that's not a real How storm. did they film there? <laughs> it's dangerous. Speaking of Mad Max, one of the winners of Mad Max was the lady... Jenny Beaven. Jenny Beaven. Yeah. Don't get even, get Beaven, who won <laughs> for Best Costume Design. And Stephen Fry made a comment that generated some controversy, not least on the um, film chat Twitter yeah. account. <laughs> Tell us what happened, Danny. I should have stopped drinking and tweeting. Yeah. But um, yeah, so Jenny Beaven won for costume design for Mad Max, and she was sort of dressed in a sort of smart, normal way and uh, not wearing like a dress or getting into the sort of, you know, red carpet hoo-ha. Yeah. And... You wouldn't have asked her who she was wearing. Yeah, what are you wearing? Just normal clothes? Like, yeah. Who are you wearing? <laughs> who are you wearing? And then she, after she got an award and left the stage, Stephen Fry is like the only costume designer who'd come to an award like ceremony dressed as a bag lady. And everyone's like, what? And so Twitter erupted. So I was like, Stephen, you bag lady, you condescending fuck. <laughs> Not my wittiest moment, but in my defense, Woody had anything he'd said that evening. That's true. And uh, You're meeting him on his level. So, and then it... It turned out that he's like mates with Jenny Beaven and they'd worked together. She was the costume designer on Gossip Park and he was tweeting all this like, you sanctimonious pricks, fuck off, whatever on Twitter. And then he quit. But he quit maybe her. he quit a, quit a Twitter. Maybe there's something to be said for just the general sort of more mentality of Twitter. But from most people's perspectives, this woman had just won an award and he sort of slagged her off for the way she was dressed. Yeah. So there's a, you know, it wasn't like, there was some justification there. Yeah, it's a real dick comment. It's a dick and he made it after she left the stage, right? So it wasn't like she was there and they were laughing away and hugging and stuff. It was, yeah. Yeah. It's not like, you know, I'm obviously best friends with Jenny Beaven, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what? You don't Come know on, that? Gosford Park. That obviously had the same costume designer as Mad Max. So, so everyone um, in Gosford Park was like bold and had spray painted teeth. 
I mean, I I feel bad for maybe I shouldn't have tweeted, but come on. Do you feel like he was more deserving of that comment than when you called um what's his face uh Boyd Hilton a, a, the clone of a ballad? <laughs> Yeah, I should really stop drinking. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. I mean, that's cool. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey, Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are going to help you out. You got to come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, Don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. So, Sam, uh, Zoolander 2's out. Deadpool's out. What are you going to see? I went to see a better film, Danny. Those are films for plebs. I went to see... I live in a more rarefied realm of film geniuses, and I only see films worthy of my you know, powerful, critical eye. So um, The Assassin was recently voted the best film of 2015 by Sight and Sound contributors. They are a snooty bunch. They're snooty. They're snooty. <laughs> and, uh, but I was thinking... It's got, there's got to be something to it, you know? Absolutely. If it's the best film of 2015, number two was Carol, and that was a very good film. And plus, it was described as a martial arts film. So I was like, well, you know, it might be a bit tricky, but there'll be martial arts in it, so that'll be pretty cool. So I went to see it, and um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get, into, we'll get into it. So it's based on a 9th century Chinese story, uh, loosely adapted from that. It's about a woman called Ni Yin Yang, who is sent by a kind of mystical nun mistress to assassinate her cousin, who's the ruler of a powerful um, dynasty, powerful local province. And she's in two minds with her to carry out the killing. And as she's trying to make up her mind, basically various hard-to-follow political shenanigans take place, punctuated by bursts of violence. And understanding what was going on in this movie seemed to require some quite detailed knowledge of, like, the original tale. And I'm not that familiar with, like, 9th century Chinese fiction. (laughs) Or with how political intrigue plays out in the courts of, you know, that era. So I really only grasped the bare bones of what was happening. And I probably should have just given up on trying to follow the plot completely and just concentrated on the title character. Because the heart of the film is actually quite a good, strong narrative. And I only really worked it out like a couple of hours later and I was thinking about it and I was like, oh, that, that was a story. It, you know, worked. It made sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that story is um, the assassin trying to decide whether to carry out the killing that she's been instructed to carry out. And it's basically this one choice that is going to define who she is and what sort of um, person she's going to be and how, how her life will play out. And it's the culmination of all the different conflicts in her life, like her family background and all the political stuff that's going on and it's also a um, moral choice about um, ethics and honor and that kind of thing and you can grasp all of that without having to know the sort of honor codes of the time or anything and it's like it's just like a universe has a universal resonance that story and it's quite solid and the actress who plays um, the main role someone called Shi Chi is really fantastic and tells that story really well and she's got this kind of vulnerability to her which never completely leaves her features, even though most of the time she's kind of serenely wandering about and, like, killing people instantly. It's one of those things where you know that someone is deadly because, like, they barely even have to move, you know? They just yeah. sort of stand absolutely still and then they, like, move an arm Jesus. and someone just... They're just dead. Wow. You know? So she's obviously a super badass and everyone references that all the time, but she does a really good job representing the inner turmoil that she's feeling. So so that was good. But the problem is that I wasn't really, uh, like, getting that when I was watching it. And it might just be because I was a bit sleepy, but um, 
I also think that a couple of the things that are the art house signifiers about it are obscuring this central story rather than helping to um, bring it out. So first off, the visuals, which everyone mentions in their reviews, it is a stunningly beautiful movie. It's got this sort of look like every frame took hours of painstaking composition so that they could work it all out and they had to wait for exactly 7.32pm to get the light correct and all that kind of stuff. And the period details have um, really worked out and it's all they're all dressed in these like elaborate, amazing clothing with the exact kind of silk they would have worn at the time and all that kind of thing. And they're all surrounded by candles and billowing drapes or they are out and about amongst awe-inspiring misty mountains and lakes and forests and that sort of thing. And it's all very lovely and it looks incredible, but I don't find it incredibly meaningful. And it lingers on that a lot, you know, because the pace is incredibly slow and there's a great deal of emphasis placed on the visuals. And the mystic fairy tale aesthetic and the wonder of nature is not that meaningful to me. I'm just like, well, that looks nice. That's yeah, really pretty. Cool you know, tree. That's what a lot of candles. It must have taken a while to light them. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of hard to maintain concentration. It gets a bit like deadening, you know? Sure. It's just kind of like, it's just sort of washes over you and it's beautiful, but it doesn't, I don't know what it's trying to tell me other than that this is pretty. And that is especially true if you don't really understand what any of the characters are doing. And that brings me to the second issue, which is the politics. It's got this densely packed layer of political intrigue in it and a lot of the narrative connecting tissue is missing i guess deliberately because the guy is such a like too much of a genius to really explain what's happening and if you know the story inside out or if you know these kinds of stories well you can probably piece together what's going on but if you don't then you're just completely lost and some reviewers have concentrated on the kind of um just the aesthetic aspect of the film as though what you that's what you're supposed to do is it's just kind of so overwhelmingly amazing it just like passes through you and you're just astounded little white lies just said the texture is the story that was their kind of um uh verdict yeah but if that was true i don't understand why there is so much plot like a lot of stuff happens yeah, yeah, yeah. and the the problem is that only the main character has understandable motivations and a personality and everyone else is just running around and doing things. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like, why are they burying that guy alive? You know, like, there's a smoke demon has appeared now. Like, why? <laughs> it's, it's just, like, full of events that are just confusing. Sure. Yeah, so because there's all this activity that is basically incomprehensible, that all that does is, is distract you from the story that it should be trying to tell, in my view, if I was the director. And you should be. And I should be. So also, it's described as this martial arts movie, and all the reviews describe it that way, but it isn't, okay? There is no martial arts in what? it, really. <laughs> there are fights in it, but I'd read before going to see it that he hadn't choreographed or even rehearsed the fight scenes, which is <laughs> a pretty bold move. And there was a lot of reviews, because I was baffled by this movie when I came out, so I read a bunch of reviews, which is why I'm referencing them so much, but... There's a lot of the reviews are describing his like unique take on fight scenes and it's so incredible the way he's like they're all shot in like the distance behind some trees or really up close where you can't see what's happening and like (laughs) I just felt like he was trying to capture something really naturalistic by having the actors just do it but in the edit they had to cut around the fact that they aren't really fighting because they haven't like rehearsed it. The only way that becomes naturalistic is if they're actually trying to kill each other, and then that would be pretty cool to watch. Yeah. Like an actual fight to the death with, like, swords. But as it is, 
the fight basically takes place in the sound design. So you hear the kind of clang of blades and the swish of knives through cloaks and that kind of thing. And it sounds really good. And the editing is very cleverly done. But you feel like what they're doing is patching up the fact that they didn't practice. Right, okay. So it's a bit like, you know, in Seven Samurai, there's that bit where they introduce the master swordsman character. And the reason you know he's like a total badass is because he duels that guy. They swing the sword one time and then they're standing absolutely still. And then the other guy just falls over. Yeah. Do you remember that bit? Yeah. And it's a really cool moment. And you introduce that guy and you're like, he's awesome. But in this, like every fight scene is like that. You know, there's like, yeah. choo, 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 and you have no idea what just happened. And then like <laughs> one person just walks away, you know, wow. it's like, whoa, it's like mystical. <laughs> And yeah, I don't know. I didn't find it particularly. Do you feel amazing. that was a bit at odds with the sort of super composed nature of the rest of the movie that this was obviously found in the edit? Well, then... if you were the guy from Variety, you would say that it beautifully merges stasis and kinesis or something like that. Right. Okay. <laughs> because some bits. Are like what does the guy from still, Film Chat say? <laughs> and some bits that are moving. No, I thought it was okay. I mean, I don't really know if that my my issue with the fights is like a massive negative, but. I, I do feel that if you were going in expecting to see some like master assassinations or incredible visual fight scenes, then you will yeah. be a bit disappointed. Yeah. So basically the verdict is it's not a meditative tone poem, even though it kind of is trying to tell you that it is. It's just a good story whose poetic aspects are somewhat obscuring it. Right. You know, that's not a good sentence, sure, sure. but uh, there's a story in there that I want to watch and it, instead i'm just like a bit baffled by all these extraneous aspects that might make it an art house masterpiece but um i'd rather just see the narrative because i'm a sort of conventional boring sort of fellow so i don't know if i i still can't decide whether i liked it or i didn't like it i probably have to watch it again to work it out but yeah so i don't know what is that so one or five stars one to five stars <laughs> should have gone to zoolander too yeah maybe i should have seen no definitely not i'm quite <laughs> you should have seen zoolander, zoolander too sam don't care about that you too. should you know you're gonna 2. Yeah, zoos. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask continually poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, a bigger splash. This is written and directed by Luca Guardagino. Probably. <laughs> I like how you make up for not really being able to pronounce it with a sort of crazy accent. He's Italian. Sounds authentic. It sounds authentic. Where's he, my brother when you need him? Um, previously directed I Am Love, which is a big critical smash in 2009. Okay, so the plot is as followed. So Tilda Swinton plays Marion Lane. She is a Bjork-esque rock star recovering from a throat operation on a beautiful Italian island along with her boyfriend, Matthias Schoenauts, playing himself. Well, <laughs> the actor Matthias Schoenauts playing Paul, her cameraman boyfriend. Her ex-boyfriend slash producer, Harry, played by Ray Fiennes, turns up with his young daughter Penelope, played by Dakota Johnson. And what starts off as a fun reunion slowly becomes something a little more sinister. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a clip of the four of them having dinner. Look solid, there's meant to be one room left at the yacht marina. Imperia says there's a queen bed we could use on the boat. At any rate, we've got to get out and enjoy the weather tomorrow because the Scirocco's on its way. That's the warm wind from the Sahara I was telling you about. With rain? 
Well, no. it's dry with the sand. Marianne? Paul's headaches, are they a problem? Oh, Harry, stop this fucking shit, all right? You can't talk. I'm not going to repeat it. Well, of course you could talk. When Bjork had her operation, after two weeks, she was... I don't give a fuck what Bjork said, all right? Or Adele. No, and nothing's a problem here. Nothing a few neurofan can take care of. So, I thought this was a lot of fun. It's a somewhat uh, familiar and perhaps maybe limited sort of story, but there was enough new elements in it and some stellar acting that made it uh, really worthwhile. So, a film about sexy rich people being sexy and rich and lounging about by a pool has got, you know, got his work cut out. And You mean to make you care about them? Yeah, and I'm not sure if you ever really emotionally connect with the characters, but you're invested in the story because it's a very tense watch. And I think this is a film where you can objectively say that it's been really well directed because on the page it's just people uh, just talking by a pool, but the direction really mines all these sort of everyday objects and sort of moments for maximum tension. They remind me a lot of Roman Polanski's early films, which have a similar thing of someone's chopping or the music's too loud or a glass is going to fall on the floor and break and it's just uh, this atmosphere yeah. which was really cleverly created. There's another Tilda Swinton movie with that as well, which is um, We Need to Talk About Kevin. It's also a lot of just general everyday household dread. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it was impressive how you were sort of tense from the off. Um, the director has also got a remake of Suspiria lined up with apparently the same cast, which seems a bit pointless, but I can see why he gets the, would have got the job because it's a bit Argento-esque as well. And so there's something of a, a sort of like art house B-movie vibe to the whole thing. And the characters are a little um, preposterous and you could have the same sort of characters in a comedy, I think. But even if they're a little broad on paper, they're... Um, they're sort of psychologically real enough and it's basically um, the film's success is mainly down to the actors who are really, really brilliant in it. Ray Fiennes is having the time of his life in this role, it feels like, and he is like, it's a real like barnstorming performance. And on reflection, I thought it was very impressive how his character is a super extrovert who dances around and is like the loudest guy in the room. But it also, you got a sense of this sort of bubbling tension. It's like a sort of internal performance where he shouts all the time. Yeah. which is like pretty impressive and he gets uh, one of the scenes of the year which is just him dancing to emotional rescue which is as fun as it sounds good dancer yeah really good hmm. there's something yeah it's a really sort of joyous moment kind of he's kind of like uh the guy you would like to hang out with a party but not spend any more time with right yeah that's kind of his character yeah, yeah. uh tilda swinton's a typically excellent self uh i think the director is slightly in love with her and so there's lots of just shots of her amazing her androgynous... Breasts, her breasts and bottom. Her breasts and bottom. Her Botox. She's like really convincing as a sort of ethereal... She's like a sort of rock star kind of character, I think, to this one. She's got that kind of quality about her. And the decision for her to have this throat operation was her... It wasn't in the script. And she invented that for her character. So she's not talking for like most of the film. And that's one of the sort of like newer elements that kind of jazz up a kind of familiar premise. And I liked her arc of... Um, setting up this ethereal ice queen, but she's actually like this sort of petulant teenager. Mm. And uh, Dakota Johnson is really, really good. I think she's like a proper movie star. She's got like a certain quality about it. She's a bit sort of, her character is like sexy teenage ingenue who just sort of sits by the pool with her glasses and stares lingering at people. And it's like, oh God, is she going to fuck that pot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is she going to fuck that table? <laughs> what's going what's gonna to happen? Um, <laughs> she's going to book something. Yeah, yeah, but she's, she just, like, really sells it. And um, Matthias Schoenhaus has got a slightly 
he's got the he's having the least fun in the role because I think he's got the kind of blandest character and he's got like a sort of he's like the calm guy and it's not a bad performance he's kind of doing it as written but I think he's kind of drawn the short straw because you need someone that character to make the other ones work and like it's a sort of testament to the film that doesn't feel unbalanced because there's a very deliberate dynamic between the four characters and they're like these two guys with these silent women and like are they trying to steal each other's women and the sort of balance of the characters are matched with the performances so I thought it was like a very sort of thankless but generous performance you know because Ray Fiennes gets to have loads of fun and he just has to sort of brood in the corner Mm. so what you suspect might happen in the film does sort of happen uh, but this isn't necessarily a flaw because I think I'm just it's the same similar thing to like a good mystery you sort of know what's going to happen but as if it's done with enough panache yeah. it's kind of fine I think it's slightly overlong and the ending doesn't land as strongly as you'd hope and part of the problem is that the film reveals these sort of lofty artistic types just to be like really self-centered and venal and the way they sort of treat the island is a bit like all these locals are there just to facilitate them having a great time. Mm. and But the final, like, half an hour of the movie kind of relies on emotional stakes. But then the film has told you that these characters are awful. So it doesn't quite have the sort of tension of the early parts of the movie. But there's still lots to recommend about it. It's like a very good film that's kind of just shy of being memorable. Great. Yeah, and I just enjoyed it as a grown-up adult genre piece where there were no explosions and no, no one no runs guns. in it, no guns. Yeah. And it's a bit of a throwback in that respect. It is a remake of an older movie, but it feels very modern. Oh. Yeah. I liked it. Katie so, also liked it. Thanks. Really so. uncomfortable. <laughs> the Katie review. Three words. When Zach Raff heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. J.J. Abrams. Hot off the success of Star Wars The Force Awakens. He's one of the biggest dudes around now. And he's known for projects that are super secret. That's his thing. And uh, so he likes to tell you nothing, but give you a little hook of something that's sort of going to be awesome. And yeah, so he's circling around his next project. And it looks like he's going to produce a film called God Particle. God Particle. God Particle. Two of the most exciting words in English language. There's a script from 22 Jump Street's Oren Uziel. I assume it's going to be quite a different kind of film to that sort of nonsensical cop um, buddy comedy. Uh, So obviously we don't know much about it. It's high concept. And when the script was originally sold, it was described as astronauts on the International Space Station making a terrifying discovery that changes all they know about reality. So just think of everything you know about reality, Danny. Flip, reverse it. Oh my God. And that's the setting for this film. Like Blazing Squad. Flip, reverse it. Yes. The idea of the Earth vanishes um, in the film. (laughs) Oh my God. After an experiment is conducted in the Large Hadron Collider. Jesus Christ. So it's not clear whether the the action is the International Space Station or the Large Hadron Collider or both at once. Everyone in space, the views of reality change on Earth. The the idea of the Earth vanishes. 
Um, whatever, the Earth is still there, but the idea of it is gone. What planet are we on? Planet? What are you talking about? No. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah, so that's it. That's all we know about it. But yeah. it's fun to speculate. Absolutely. And Danny and I have each come up with possible and almost certain plot directions for the yeah. movie. It's going to be yeah. one of the two. Absolutely. And yeah, we're going to read them out and you, the listener, will get to decide which one you like better. You Absolutely. can probably make that decision just personally in your own mind. But you could let us know about it as well if you want. Okay. Okay. Shall I go? Go for it. Close your eyes, listeners. Imagine this. Fade up. The CERN Laboratory. Who's that? Who's that man? It's Professor Brian Cox. He's making some last-minute adjustments to the Large Hadron Collider. He turns it on. Nothing. For three minutes. (laughs) Then, everything explodes. Everything explodes and combusts at the same time. Blinding white light. Sort of like... Music. White out. Fade up again. (laughs) He wakes up. He's like, I must have fallen asleep while doing these adjustments. Oh, maybe I should get some fresh air. Goes outside. Everything's gone. (laughs) The world has disappeared. (laughs) It's full of twists. Okay. He's like, oh my God. What have have I done? Goes back inside to the cell laboratory. That's when the second Professor Brian Cox appears. Oh my God. Original Brian's like, are you from the future? Second Brian Cox is like, no, the past. And I haven't really figured out the rest, but... There'll be a bit of a sexy lady in her pants, and everybody will be good at everything. Also, <coughs> the end credits will be scored to Things Can Only Get Better by Doreen. Yeah, featuring Brian Cox on the keyboards. Yeah. Yeah, I hope he does a new version for the movie with lyrics about the God Particle. So that sounds really good, Danny. Thank you. Does Brian Cox play himself? No, it's, it's Brian Cox playing Professor Brian Cox. Okay, so the, the actor, actor Brian, Brian Cox. Cox. Yeah, who's much older and, like, fatter. But he is also an actor, so that's the upside. Yeah, but I'm planning to use, like, that motion capture technology to make him look exactly like Brian Cox. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. They can do that now. They can make anyone look like anyone. Yeah. It's a brave new world. Well, that sounds good. That takes some beating. Okay, here's my idea, even more coherent and well thought out than that one. Scientists make a terrifying discovery that changes all we know about reality. Okay, similarly to the announced announced plot. They invent a special kind of X-ray... That shows you what your soul looks like. It oh turns God. out everyone's soul looks like a screaming ghost trapped inside a glass jar. The x-ray machine becomes... Whoa. Whoa. Which yeah. is very upsetting. The x-ray machine becomes sentient. Jesus. And it starts scanning everyone on Earth. Oh my God. 90% of the population is driven insane by the screaming of the trapped soul ghost that they've just found inside them from the scanning of the x-ray. But one woman is astonished to find that her soul looks like a cheerful old man winking. <laughs> it's different kind of soul completely to the others. It's unique. The old man speaks to her from inside his glass jar while he's winking. He says, You belong among the stars. She leaves Earth in a spacecraft. But what will she find out there in the oh darkness of space? Okay. Oh, the end credits music. <laughs> Thank you. The end credits music is something inside so strong. Um, because it's about being inside. Brilliant. Yeah, so I also think that one is quite good, and that's probably a lengthy direction that they will want to <laughs> contemplate when they're writing the script. Have you thought about casting? Um, Nimi Rapace, she likes to go into space alone, <laughs> searching from Prometheus. Yeah. And the old man? Um, Max von Sydow, it's the perfect old man. Do you um, reckon anyone's told Max von Sydow to like, sit down in an angry way? <laughs> sit down, Sydow! <laughs> Brilliant. But I would like to think that's actually happened. Well, it probably has when he was a child. Sit down, sit out. But 
Where's he from? I don't think they would have spoken to him Swedish. in English. Yeah, that's the problem. If he was uh, educated in the UK, I think they, that yeah. might have happened. I want to make a film called Sit Down, Sit Out. It's like a follow-up to Listen Up, Philip. <laughs> okay, you, you go do that. I actually think that that's such an urgent idea. You should do that immediately. <laughs> okay, and uh, see you guys. See ya. So Danny's, <laughs> gone, up. Danny's gone to write his sequel to Listen Up, Philip, about Max von Sydow being told to sit down. And I'm going to go uh, get coffee or something like that. So have a lovely week. And yeah, we'll see you next time. That's probably the worst joke I've ever made on this podcast. Don't know. It was great, Danny. It was really funny. It was brilliant. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sit down, sit out. Stop it! Bye, guys.